All right, let's go. Hi, and welcome to the second episode of the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. And we're asking the question, if your theology were wrong, would you want to know? In this episode, we will be talking about how the very premise and core of the Christian faith is illogical and can't possibly be real. So before we get started into today's episode, I wanted to share a story about how I used our tagline to facilitate a conversation with my sister last year. We had some positive feedback in some of the Facebook groups um, after the first episode about this tagline. So, So I wanted to tell you guys a little more about it. And also, I apologize for my voice. I'm getting over something and I'm trying real hard to talk loud and clearly. So last year, I was struggling to come up with a way to tell my sister that I was no longer a Christian. And my sister is very religious. Uh, She always has been ever since we were kids. It's really just in her nature. And so I was very nervous to tell her that I wasn't a Christian. And what I did is eventually I texted her this question. I said, if Christianity weren't true, would you want to know about it? And her reply was, I would want to see the evidence for myself and make a decision. And I thought that was the best answer yeah, that's that a great I could answer. have possibly hoped for. Yeah. So that gave me the courage to approach her and to be able to tell her how I started on my journey. And I didn't tell her exactly what I learned because I didn't want to yank her out of her faith you know, before she was ready, if she's ever going to be ready. But I at least felt comfortable telling her then about me. And the conversation went really well. And we're very close. And so I didn't want anything to get in the way of our friendship and relationship. So yeah, it ended up really well. And I used that exact tagline uh, to open up that conversation. So just in case that helps anyone. Yeah, that's really cool. Because I think think that is a really good lead in if you're talking to someone, especially somebody that you're close with, because... There is a relationship there that you don't want to damage, obviously, and the loss of faith and walking away from God and, you know, depending on how far down that spectrum you go can be potentially damaging to a relationship, depending on how you approach it. So, yeah, we hopefully that will be something that you guys can use in your own conversations with people as you try to share your journey with other people. So. So as we said, we're going to talk a little bit about the the premises and the core doctrines of Christianity and how they really just don't make a lot of sense. And the easiest way to look at those core doctrines are if you look at any church, they have a statement of faith on their website. You know, it's a what we believe or about us or, you know, depending on how cool and edgy the church is, you know, they might hide it in their website in different ways. But But the core doctrines are really the foundation of that church and of the Christian faith. And every church has some slight variations about what their denomination or faith community views as central to their identity. But what we want to ask is, what if those core doctrines are actually flawed? What if the very basis of Christianity has so many cracks in it that it can't really support itself? We're going to kind of look at some formats um, for, between our two churches that we kind of grew up in, the, the Lutheran church and the Baptist church, and they kind of follow a format of being about God, about man, and about salvation. And then there's usually a lot of other doctrines that kind of get in there, but we're going to only focus on those three for today. Right. So uh, I kind of summarized the the three main topics that we are going to be tackling today. The The Baptist, which is Phil, and Lutheran, which is me, they are pretty much the same. So it was easy to kind of make them cohesive. So I'll read that summary right now. God is eternal, unchanging, 
all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving, completely just, and perfectly holy. Man was made in God's image, at first perfect, but sin came into the world through disobedience to God, which happened when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By this fall, the first man and his natural offspring have lost the original knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and thus all men are sinners already by birth, dead in sins, inclined to all evil, and subject to the wrath of God. By Jesus' suffering and death as the substitute for all people of all time, he purchased and won forgiveness and eternal life for us. Those who hear this good news and believe it are given the free gift, I'm doing air quotes there, free gift <laughs> of eternal life that it offers. You're using it wrong, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what this means. God creates faith in Christ and gives people forgiveness through him. So that was like a lot of words, word salad right there. <laughs> and it's um, it's a very complicated story, isn't it, Phil? Yeah. I mean, I think, you, first of all, you could probably write that exact thing on almost any church website, and it would sum up the very basis of what most churches believe and what they ask their followers and congregants to believe. So what we want to kind of do is kind of pick that apart a little bit and pick out the sections about God and about man and about salvation, and then see if we can find some logical flaws in there, things that just really don't make sense from the standpoint of of reality, to be honest. Because when you're in the echo chamber of Christianity, it all makes sense to you. You're, you've been taught a certain way. It makes sense. And so what we're trying to do is maybe crack through a little bit of that echo and point out some of the things that, that they just don't really make sense. You know, So we're going to Assume for this episode the idea that God exists, because that's a, a, a big topic that we're not trying to cover in this episode. You know, there's a lot of, you know, things that we could do from a philosophical standpoint about the existence of God, but we're going to make the assumption in this episode that God exists, and we're going to kind of focus on the character of that God and see if it lines up with that description in the summary where he is all loving, all knowing, all those attributes that are very common to what people believe about God, you know, that he's perfect, that he's unchanging, that he's eternal, you know, all these things. So yeah, well, we'll, we'll cause enough cracks that I think we'll, we'll maybe cause it all to come tumbling down. We'll see. In the Baptist statement of faith, there is a, a section that says that God, the father is eternal, unchanging, all knowing, all wise, all loving, Completely just, perfectly holy, sovereign, ruler and sustainer of the universe. So if you go line by line through those things, you could probably pick apart each little part. So we're going to focus on what we like to call the omnis, and that's omnipotence, which is all-powerful, omniscient, which is all-knowing, and omnibenevolent, which is all-loving. So those are the ones we're, we're going to talk about. Right, and tri the term tri-omni is referring to the three of those together. Yeah. So... I'm not sure if this has an official name as far as this paradox go. I think we call it the Omni Paradox, but I feel like there was some other... It's the Epicurean Paradox. There it is, Epicurean Paradox, which kind of talks about why it, you can accept maybe that God is one of these Omnis, but there's... Or maybe two. Or maybe yeah. two, but there's no way that he could be all three. So there's three questions that are presented at the beginning of the Epicurean Paradox. Can God prevent evil? Does God know about evil? And does God want to prevent evil? So in order to preserve the tri-omni nature of God, we have to answer yes to all of those questions. 
So God can prevent evil. God knows about evil. God wants to prevent evil. So the question then is, why is there evil? And there's um, some reasons that are given and then ruled out. So the first reason is, is there evil to test us? He's all-knowing, so he already knows what we would do. So there is no need to test us. So that can't be the reason. Is there evil because of Satan? No, because an all-powerful and all-good God would destroy Satan. Is there evil as a result of free will? Well, if God couldn't have created a universe with free will and no evil, then he's not all-powerful. If he could have, then why didn't he? And also, this is just something that I've always has always bothered me. Heaven is supposedly perfect, and we're supposed to have free will in heaven. So it can supposedly be done, but it's not heaven on earth. So I'm still not really clear what the point of earth is. <laughs> so that's the end of the Epicurean paradox, and it can't be solved, basically, with uh, the tri-omnis. You have to rule one of them out to make sense logically. Yeah. And then the question becomes, well, which one would you rule out, you know, and say, oh, well, that one's not that important. And most believers are not willing to even look at those things and say, oh, well, what if he wasn't omnipotent or what if he wasn't omniscient or what if he wasn't all loving that they basically have some kind of rationale or or explanation of why the version of omnipotence doesn't line up with what omnipotence actually means, <laughs> you know, and there's like a yeah. famous physical philosophical question of like, could God build a rock, make a rock so big that he can't pick it up, you know, and you would have to answer yes to that question if he was omnipotent, but then he wouldn't be omnipotent. <laughs> so Also, God can't make people love him. Right. That's another thing he can't do. He's had to construct this like weird fall scenario where we're all deserving punishment in order for us to love him so that we can be saved. It's kind of like he's dangling something over our heads to get that love. Right. It's a very manipulative kind of relationship where yeah, yeah the worship is demanded, but you, he, he either knows, he already knows if you're going to worship him or not. So then you don't have free will as far as your choice to worship or not. <laughs> so it's not really free will in the sense of there is a choice. It's like, it's a forced choice. You know, that's not really what a choice is. So part of the, Christian God nature is that he's loving. And I struggle with seeing how he could be loving with all of the things that happen in the Old Testament. Right. We've already touched on some of these in the first episode, but there was the flood. And then the one that is the worst to me is the Amalekites and how God says to utterly destroy them and leave no woman or child or camel or donkey or anything moving and slaughter them all. Yeah. And I just think like, how is that a loving God? Even if they were in some way sinful, is that really the best way to handle it? Yeah, and the Amalekites weren't the only uh, victims of that kind of holiness thing that likes to pop up in the Old Testament. And there's all kinds of people. You think about the people of Jericho. They were they got told the same thing: go in, kill everybody. You know, don't leave anybody alive. You know, and then there's other places where it said go in, kill everybody, but keep all the virgin women. So you can right. make them sex Keep slaves. Them for you can make them sex slaves. So like these are not. I'd rather be dead, honestly. Right. Like these are not the kind of characteristics of someone who's loving. And and if you would view that as loving, then you know really these are characteristics of an abusive relationship for sure. You know, it's you're in a relationship with someone who is narcissistic and abusive and has some needs that clearly are not being met, but need to be met by us, the finite humans, which also doesn't make sense for 
someone who's perfect. Right. You're like, why would you like worship? Yeah. Right? Why would you need worship if you are everything already? You know? It's so strange. Yeah. Yeah. So those three omnis and there's, I mean, we could probably talk the rest of the day about those omnis to be honest, but for the sake of time, you know, we'll, we'll keep on moving. But some of the other things in those descriptions of God are that he's eternal. Okay. Well, what does that mean? That opens a big can of worms as far as the idea of time and the existence of the universe. What are your thoughts on eternal? Well, I've always wondered, well, where did God come from then? Like who's God's creator? And there's actually a really good video by Dark Matter 5252 or 2525. (laughs) I can't remember, but he's a very famous YouTube guy. Uh, He made a really good video about this. We should link to it in the description. Yeah, we'll try to do that. So the next part of most of these doctrinal statements is where they talk about man. And this is where we're going to dig into the idea of original sin, which the concept of original sin is basically based on the fall and Adam and Eve and their sinning in the garden, which if the Garden of Eden existed and Adam and Eve existed because of their sin in the garden, now we have original sin, which has been passed down to all the generations of humanity because of that error (laughs) that they made. Right. And Baptist and Lutherans both believe in uh, the literal gen- creation story in Genesis. So so when we're talking right now about the fall, we literally mean that this happened in the Garden of Eden four or 5,000 years ago, I guess. Right. So just to be clear that um, not everybody, not, not all Christians believe that this is literal, but where we grew up, it was literal. And so that's how kind of how we're going about this right now. Yeah, and I think, I, I think most of the mainstream, at least the evangelical type Christianity, denominations believe in a literal six-day creation. They believe the Garden of Eden was a real place and that the story of Adam and Eve was an actual thing that happened in history. It wasn't based on mythology or anything like that. It was actually something that happened, which is how they view everything that's in the Bible. Everything in the Bible was real. So so what's the problem with original sin, Phil? The biggest problem I feel like is it's like an eternal punishment for something you didn't do. Why should we now... Let's again, holding to this timeline, 6,000 years later, be held accountable and responsible for the choices of some people that lived in a garden 6,000 years ago. It sounds so ridiculous when you say it like that. Yeah, I I actually was stumbling over it while I was talking about it because I was like, what the (laughs) hell am I saying? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. You know, so this idea of original sin is that the sin of Adam, which also, this is a little pet peeve of mine, the sin nature thing is passed down through Adam. But if you read the story, it was Eve was the one who sinned first, right? Allegedly. And then she gives the fruit to Adam. Adam says, oh, that looks good. I'll take it. And as soon as he bites it, now we have original sin. So you've already got the beginnings of God's misogyny because women, they were so weak and flawed that their sin didn't didn't really count. They got hoodwinked by Satan, the talking snake. But Adam, as the man of the family, he made the choice, you know. And so now if you read through the rest of the Bible, you know, it'll say through one man's sin, yeah. sin entered the world, you know. And that's always been like a, not always, but since I've been on this journey, that's always been like a thing that I'm like, you even kicked Eve, <laughs> you've been kicking women since the dawn of time, just stomping on them. And I don't know, that's, that's just one of those things that it bugs me. Oh, yeah. Well, on behalf of women everywhere, thanks for letting it bug you. Well, you know, if you actually read it closely, though, uh, God never told her. She wasn't created yet when God gave the instruction not to eat from the tree. Oh, true. So, so technically, she didn't know. Oh, so she didn't know. So that's the same thing as like when your kids do something 
and they say, well, you didn't tell me that I couldn't do that. And then you as the parents say, oh, well, you should know better. Oh, yeah. Or Adam should have told you. Right. And that's not really fair either. You know, we, we make that mistake sometimes as parents. So everyone that was has been born since Adam is now got this sin nature inside them. And there's a lot you could dig into the whole idea of original sin and, you know, all that stuff. But we're going to kind of take a bird's eye view so we don't get bogged down. But everyone who's been born now has been born into sin. None of us asked to be born, right? Did you ask to be born? I know I didn't, you know. I did not. None of us had any control over that happening. And then because of that, now we're born with this innate garbage inside of us that has destined us for eternal separation from God. Innate garbage. I love that. Yeah. That sounds like it could be like a emo band or something like that. Yes, I was thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. Like one of those stereo shoes (laughs) bands. Like, yeah, innate garbage. So then it brings up again, like, things about the character of God, like, is God so emotionally incontinent that he can't control his rage because somebody pissed him off 6,000 years ago? Yes. The answer to that, that is yes. <laughs> right. I, I mean, that's crazy. I, and I know you have a really good analogy about this, about puppies. Yeah. Well, it's not mine. Uh, yeah, I'll read it, but I want to be clear. It's not mine. Uh, so I got this from a blog called sufficientreasons.wordpress.com. And this is the best blog on the planet. <laughs> you like logic and reason, honestly, you have to go check out this blog. I've read the entire thing from start to finish and I loved it. All right. So I, I shortened this story for, for brevity's sake. Imagine Boris claims to love puppies and fills his house with puppies. Boris also hates barking. And so he makes a simple rule that any puppy who barks will be thrown into the basement to die. Yet to Boris's surprise, not a single puppy chooses to obey the rule. And one by one, Boris is forced to toss them into the basement to die. What is wrong with this scenario? You might claim that the puppy's disposition to bark is far too strong to resist. How would we know this? We would determine this based on the percentage of the puppies who successfully refrained from barking. (laughs) If no puppy was successful in refraining from barking, we could conclude that the impulse to bark was so unavoidable that the puppies could not be punished for barking. The Bible claims not a single human has successfully refrained from sinning. What can we conclude from this? We have already concluded that tossing barking puppies into the basement to die due to their unrequested and unavoidable impulse to bark is grossly unjust. Can we not also conclude that eternally damning humans for yielding to an unrequested and unavoidable impulse to sin is not anything an actual just God of the universe would consider? And that's the end of the blog post. So th- basically, do, do we have a choice to not sin? No, clearly we do not. So why do we deserve damnation for something we have no control over? Yeah. And, and then the, I, I, can, I can hear my Baptist programming just like swimming around in my ears still. And the answer that any good Christian would give, well, it's because of the holiness of God. You know, God can't stand sin. And so because we are born with this sin, God had to do something about it. But it goes back to the thing. Well, if he was loving, couldn't he have forgiven Adam and Eve for their sin back then? And maybe there was some, you know, immediate consequence for their sin back then. Maybe they had to leave the garden like it said they would have to do. You know, and maybe even there were some kind of physical ramifications for what they did wrong, quote unquote, again. But how does that action all those years ago impact me now or you for eternity for eternity and for all of mankind that will ever exist yeah. now they now they have this innate garbage 
inside them, you know, that, it, that basically has doomed them to, to a life of separation from God. To me, that doesn't seem like free will because if you knew about this, would you choose to sin? No, of course you wouldn't. Oh, like if I were Adam and I knew that I would be damning all of the human race for all eternity, if I ate this apple, would I have done it? Right. I would like to think that I would not have. Yeah. To me, it seems like, again, God was omniscient, so he knew that they were going to sin. He put them in a situation where supposedly it was perfect. That brings up another question of how perfect was it if like they needed something else besides what was in that garden and they didn't have, they didn't have the sin nature. So they had literally no reason to want what was, what that tree was. Like there was a whole garden full of food and all this kind of stuff. So there's no real reason that they should have even wanted that fruit. Why was the tree there in the first place? <laughs> right. Like, like why, why, why didn't God put it on the, if it had to exist at all, why didn't God put it on the other side of the world where they couldn't reach it? You know, just to make sure right. that they wouldn't get into any trouble. It's right. almost like he wanted them to eat it. Right. It, it's like when you put a big thing of cookies on your dining room table and then you tell your six-year-old, don't eat these cookies. Right. You know what's going to happen. So whose fault is it if the kid eats the cookies? You can get mad at them. Yes, because they didn't follow directions. But still, you put them in a situation because I don't know too many six-year-olds that are avoiding, avoiding a bowl of cookies on the right. table. And that's a really good analogy because early humans like Adam and Eve, they would have been emotionally unwise like a four or a five-year-old. That's true. Do you know what I mean? So like they hadn't eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil yet. So how did they know it was wrong to eat from the tree of knowledge of right. good and evil? Because God told them not to. And so then they're like, oh, well, why? And then the magic talking snake told them, oh, well, God knows this. And they were like, hmm, that sounds good. I think I'll do that. <laughs> that's another thing about the snake. So the Bible doesn't actually say it was Satan, but that's what Christians say. True. Basically, they, you know, tradition, they say it's Satan. I like to think it's not because it doesn't say right. It. But why would God have made that talking snake and put it there in the first right. place? There's so many. There's so many crazy things about the Garden of Eden. Like, if there was a talking snake, does that mean all the snakes and all the animals talked? And so it was no weird thing if like Adam was out yakking with the monkeys one day and they were like, "Hey, do we ran into the snake over there?" And he was hanging out by that tree we're not supposed to eat from. Was that normal? Like, because to me. I don't know if the if Adam and Eve had primitive thinking, you know, because supposedly they were created also perfect, you know. So let's say they were like super smart and did have the ability for logic and reason. If no other animal in the garden was talking and a snake comes up to you and starts talking, isn't that a red flag? You would think. It just seems bizarre to me, the whole idea of a, of a snake hoodwinking some logical, rational, perfect beings, you know. So another thing about the snake, did it have legs? Do you know why I'm asking you that? No, explain. Because after the fall happened and God got all mad at the snake, he said that you will be cursed to oh, slither. be on your belly. Yeah, slither on, slither your, on belly. your belly. Yeah, so. so what was it doing before? It was not slithering on its belly. It was walking on legs. It was a Komodo dragon maybe. And so it wasn't, <laughs> yeah, e so it wasn't even a snake. It wasn't even a snake. Yeah. So the whole, the whole, you can see that if you really start looking at these things like through the lens of logic and reason, like none of it makes sense. And the biggest thing about original sin to me that the whole idea is was just the biggest bait and switch of all time. <laughs> like, like you set these people up for failure and then punish them and all of humanity for something that you knew they would do. You set them up to do and you could have prevented them from doing or not even put them in a situation where they would have thought about doing it. So um, along that vein, I want to read something from the book, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Have you read this? Oh, book? is that Douglas Adams? 
Yes. Oh, yes. The answer is 42. I already know. It is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but what is the question? Yeah, that's 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 the question is what is the question? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm looking forward to this. I forgot that you're going to okay. do this. All right. Listeners, if you have not read these books, you have to. They are so funny and they're so thought provoking. And the author um, was an atheist. And I remember reading these books in college and loving them. But but when I got to the parts that kind of disparaged religion, I, I like put my my hands over my ears and I was like, no, 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 I don't want to hear this. So now I can really go back and appreciate all those wise things that he said. And they make so much sense. All right. So listen to this. Ford is talking to Arthur. Ford um, says, your God person puts an apple tree in the middle of a garden and says, do what you like, guys. Oh, but don't eat the apple. Surprise, surprise. They eat it. And he leaps out from behind a bush shouting, gotcha. It wouldn't have made any difference if they hadn't eaten it. And Arthur says, why not? Ford says, because if you're dealing with somebody who has the sort of mentality, which likes leaving hats on the pavement with bricks under them, you know, perfectly well, they won't give up. They'll get you in the end. (laughs) I forgot about that. So wise. I might have to reread those books because those are amazing. They are. They're so funny. So the next kind of logical progression in this is to talk about, okay, so now man is is sinful. They're destined for hell. Now what? What's God going to do to save these people from hell? So we're going to talk a little bit about salvation and what that means. I mean, there's there's a big theological discussion here about, you know, substitutionary atonement and all that kind of stuff. But salvation, according to Christians, is the response to this, to sin. And to the separation from God. Because God is loving, he swooped down. Granted, he waited 4,000 years to swoop down and send Jesus to die on the cross. And then, allegedly, three days later, rise from the dead, go back to heaven, and provide salvation for people who believe. To be saved, you have to hear this message, and then you have to believe it. There's a, a large swath of the world that has never heard the word Jesus. They've never read the Bible, you know? Yeah. So that opens a big can of worms. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read Rachel Held, uh, Held Evans, but she talks about in her first book, you know, that basically evangelical Christians won a geographic lottery. If I was born in Calcutta, India, the chances of me having become an evangelical Christian were about zero. But I was born in Edison, New Jersey, which granted is kind of like the armpit of the country anyway, but still... There's a lot of Christians there. <laughs> so, so I, I kind of won the geographical lotter- lottery because I was put in a place where I could hear about this glorious salvation message. But what about the billions, literally billions of people that don't hear this? I have no chance to even believe it. I'm glad you brought this up because I heard a video, an interview done by Harmonic Atheist. Shout out to Harmonic Atheist, to Mills. He's great. Woo-hoo. <laughs> so the this was the reason that this woman had deconverted that she started asking this very question that you're posing and when she asked somebody the answer that they gave was well if they've never heard of Jesus and they die then God will just give them a free pass basically take them up to heaven they're good and she's like then why are we going out and evangelizing to them <laughs> it's better if they never hear about Jesus what are we doing and right they wouldn't acknowledge that there was a disconnect there and that started unraveling everything for her. Yeah, because if you think if you don't tell someone about Jesus, then they don't have the choice to believe or not believe. Yeah. It's the it's the same thing about that Christians believe about the age of accountability for children. 
there's no, which is also not in the Bible, but children, you know, be, before a certain age, the age of reason, which some people say is six, some people say is 10. If you happen to pass away before that age, well, then you go to heaven because you don't have the capacity to make that decision. So the most loving thing a woman could do is kill her child before they reach the age of 10. Right. Absolutely. Like you might as well just like birth it and kill it so it can go right to heaven. Ugh, so horrible. It's ridiculous, you know, and, and I grew up with that age of accountability thing and I became a Christian quote unquote at the age of the ripe old age of four. So if you really believed in the age of accountability, no self-respecting pastor or whatever should have accepted my conversion yeah. because it's long before the age of reason. I shouldn't. I don't even think what Lutherans do when they confirm at 13, I don't even think that's old enough because you feel such immense pressure from your family. You don't have the guts to stand up and say, wait, no, I don't believe this. This is, this doesn't make sense to me. Like I, right. I didn't have that within me yet at that age to be able to defend myself and voice my own beliefs. And you just don't have the rational thought processes even to to critically think about. You've heard this from your parents, well, let's say in your case, all the way to age 13. And then why on earth would you all of a sudden think, well, that doesn't seem real. Let me figure out if it's not real. And where would you go to find out that it's not real? Right. Because you're in an echo chamber. Right. There's no way you could find out. So yeah, so either way, I mean, we talked touched on this beginning in the first episode that idea of this being indoctrination. And we'll dig into this in another episode. Yes. I, I think yes. you and I are both hopped up on the idea of child indoctrination and Big you know, time. not exposing your children to Christianity <laughs> for, yeah. for their own well-being. But we'll, we'll skip over that for now. But but how does how does somebody get salvation in this um, scenario? Like, what does God require? Belief. God requires belief that Jesus was his son and died on the cross for our sins. But why? <laughs> yeah, let me ask you. What, so Jesus had to come down and die. Why? Because God requires blood sacrifice in order to forgive sins. Oh, that makes perfect sense. I'm so glad you, I'm glad you cleared that up for me because yeah. a perfect loving God requires blood. Yeah. So this is the same God that created the entire universe, the cosmos, photons, quarks, every single atom, neutrino particles, black holes, giant supernovas. The same God needs blood in order to forgive and cannot break his own rule. Right. Not even for the love of humans. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And so you had 4,000 or 5,000 years of human history before Jesus came from Adam and all that stuff before Jesus came. So they didn't have the ability, obviously, to believe in Jesus because he hadn't come yet. So what did they have to do? That's a great question. Maybe nothing. Maybe they just went straight to heaven. What? Yeah, that's what you would think if you like, okay, you didn't hear about Jesus. But no, they had a whole system of sacrifices, which was also blood. So you're going to go and take the prime lamb out of your flock in your agricultural society, and you're going to sacrifice it to God. So even even before Jesus, God was requiring blood sacrifice. And there's a lot that goes into the whole Levitical system and sacrifices and all that stuff. But that's really where the idea of substitutionary atonement came from, was that idea in the Jewish faith of sacrifice, the sacrificial system. And all of that was, according to Christians now, pointing to the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make. No. Which makes no sense either, because like, how could anybody in that thing, you're talking about, oh, the coming of the Messiah, and I'm sacrificing this thing to symbolize the coming of the Messiah, but you don't really know what that is, because clearly they didn't recognize him when he came. Right. The Jews don't even acknowledge that Jesus was God or anything. So, right. So they couldn't have been making sacrifices to lead up to Jesus. 
Right. But yeah, you're exactly right when you say that it was a substitution thing. So they would even put their hands on the head of the animal they were sacrificing to symbolize their sins moving from the person to the animal. And then they're being absolved of the sins when they slaughter the animal. Right. And if you think about that from just a humane standpoint, that's just disgusting. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah. And the idea of sacrifice, you know, Christians always want to pride themselves as being like different from other religions. But didn't every other ancient religion in the world believe that their gods were vengeful and required sacrifice? It's very suspicious, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. They were like, oh, well, we need the blood of 70 virgins, you know, for this one. Or there's so many Canaanites and Mesopotamian myths and stuff that they all had to sacrifice. I think there's a story in the Old Testament about Elijah or Elisha. I can't remember which one, you know, against the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal had their big altar set up, you know, because everybody had an altar. We're all used to burning stuff for our God. Yeah. (laughs) And that's just a common practice. But the big question is why? Why would you need blood to offer forgiveness if you were an omnipotent, all-loving God? I, I spend a lot of time today researching that very question trying to find a good answer from a Christian source that could potentially answer this. And I didn't find anything satisfactory. The best I could find is that it made humans realize the gravity of their actions and that it had consequences so that when a person sinned, they knew, oh, now I have to go kill this lamb. And they had to watch it squirm and and quiver after it died. Like, so it was kind of showing the gravity of their sins. So it was emotional manipulation, basically. Oh, yeah. And really, if you think about how Christians come to repentance, it's all about the sacrifice and, you know, visualizing Jesus on the cross and seeing him die for your sins. And that's supposed to break your heart, which really, it's just emotional manipulation. Sin, if it's not even a thing that you did, then why would you need to have a blood sacrifice? You know, like God created this problem of sin, and then he came along 5,000 years later with the solution. The, the best analogy I have for this is imagine if you had a, a home builder, a contractor who built shitty houses and he built the houses crappy on purpose because his brother had a home remodeling company, a home repair company. So what he did was he built your crappy house, sold it to you. And then when your house fell apart a year later or your plumbing burst or your septic system overflowed crap in your backyard, who's going to sweep in to save the day but his brother? It's a little bit of a conflict of interest. Oh, interesting. So like the, the whole idea of, of God creating sin and then creating salvation is just one cosmic conflict of interest. And to take that metaphor even further, the housemaker, okay, so the housemaker is God. Then the housemaker would be getting mad at the house and holding the house <laughs> at fault for being crappy. Right. Instead of himself. Right. You stupid house. I can't believe your plumbing is so shitty. Like, this is not even to code. Oh, wait, I built this. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. So the last part about this salvation thing that I used to believe so wholeheartedly is that salvation was a free gift. And you hear this, oh, the gift of salvation, the free gift of salvation, blah, blah. And we've talked about that there's a lot of prerequisites to this gift. Do you give a lot of gifts that have prerequisites? No. Or contingencies, do you mean? Like conditions, conditions. Yeah, conditions. Did you, when you gave presents (laughs) to your children... Did they have to do anything to get those presents? They didn't have to do anything, but they had to continue to behave well or I would take them away. (laughs) Right. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, I mean, the idea of a gift is, to me, is a little bit 
subjective, I guess, depending on how you view a gift, you know, and the, the conditions or the prerequisites or contingencies, whatever you want to call them for the skippers, you had to hear the good news. You got to believe it. And then you've got to dedicate your life to living the way the Bible and Jesus tells you to do. So to me, that doesn't feel like a gift. It seems like an awful lot of work. The hijacking of your life. Yeah. I don't know. To me, like a lot of people thrive in this and that lifestyle. I know I did for like the longest time, but you don't realize like how much power and autonomy you're giving away. And maybe that's comforting for like a lot of people. Maybe they don't want to actually have to make decisions and take responsibility. So it's just easy to pawn it off on God and, you know, say, okay, well, I believe this, so I'm going to heaven. So who cares? (laughs) You know, like the, the idea of the gift, it boggles me a little bit. I have a scenario that I think kind of explains this idea of gift, and it's not a perfect scenario, so I'll tell it and ask the listeners to give it a grain of salt. And honestly, if you have feedback on these scenarios and you can pick apart my scenario and say, this is why it's not a good one, it's it's hard to analogize. It's hard to analogize things that are not in reality with things that are in reality. So this might be a little bit imperfect, but the idea of the free gift. Imagine that you owe a a massive amount of debt to a company, like a debt that you will never be able to pay off. And you tried to negotiate payments, you tried to get a settlement, work out some some deal with the company, and you're notified that your deadline has passed, and because you haven't paid the debt, you're going to be killed. This is like a serious debt. This must be like a Russian mafia debt. So amidst your piles of mail, you receive a letter that says your debt can be 100% forgiven, but there are certain conditions that must be met in order for you to receive this forgiveness. You have to sign an affidavit, you have to return the affidavit to the forgiving company, and then you have to wear clothing from this company for the rest of your life to tell people about the good news of this company that forgave your debt. You also have to go out every Sunday and tell people in your city about the company and turn in a tracking sheet with the names of everybody you shared your good news with. If you don't meet these conditions, your debt will be called due immediately. That's one gift scenario. The second gift scenario is... You're in line in the drive-thru at Starbucks to get your Trenta quadruple shot espresso mocha with whip and extra cream. I don't know. That sounds disgusting, but I just wanted to make it as ridiculous as possible. And also that would be like $38, you know, because it's like a really <laughs> big, really big drink. Why well, don't go to Starbucks? Right. So you pull up to the drive-thru line expecting to pay for your drink. And the barista tells you, oh, it's already been paid for. Here's your drink. Have a nice day. And you're like, ooh, and you drive off. So in those two scenarios, which one of those feels more like a gift? The second scenario, for sure. Yeah, because there wasn't really the only thing you had to do was take the coffee, which you were already there to get anyway. And you're able to go on and live your life after that in the way that you were before, and you don't have to change anything. Right. Your first scenario sounded like Jehovah's Witnesses. With having to go around every Sunday, tell people in your city and turn in a tracking sheet. Oh, yeah. Tracking sheets. That's totally Jehovah's Witness. Oh, I did. We did that in the Baptist world, too. Oh, you did? did. Oh, Oh, door-to-door visitation, a whole bunch of stuff. I don't know if we did tracking sheets, but maybe I was too young to know about that. But I feel like my dad probably did. So that's the idea of salvation and the gift. I don't know if even a real a neat way to wrap up talking about salvation, but... Well, just that there's strings attached, for sure. Yes. 
And the basic premise makes no sense. Yes. Because why why would God need to have blood to forgive sins and substitute his son to forgive our sins? And his son only died. I mean, I'm sure it was a torturous death, but a lot of people have died worse deaths than that. So it's not like it was the biggest sacrifice that anybody's ever made. Right. And he was resurrected three days later. So he's in heaven right now. Like he didn't go to hell forever. Right. He didn't take our place in hell forever. Right. Yeah, he gave up a weekend, basically. Yeah, yeah. So it's not even a fair swap, and it doesn't seem logical. Yeah. But that's what it is. Yeah, that's what it is. What was your perception of some of these core doctrines when you were a Christian? Did yeah. did anything ever stand out to you as being like weird? I feel like yes. you probably yeah you probably had a lot of things that were like weird that didn't sit right with you. Yes, yes, because I was always questioning everything, not just religion, but the world. I was always thinking and questioning, and something definitely seemed off to me about this whole story when I was a kid. You know, like I would read the creation story and think, but I don't understand. Like Adam and Eve were were only on Earth for about five minutes before they sinned. Like it was inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't going to be the tree, it was going to be something else. And I could not vocalize my thoughts back then when I was a kid. And I couldn't describe why it bothered me so much. But looking back, I think I, I'm pretty sure that is the main reason why I could not really truly believe in Christianity is because I could see that this basic premise was so flawed. Basically, I knew there was something off about it the whole time. I just couldn't put it into words. Couldn't put it into words. Yeah. And couldn't really put your finger on what it was because, again, you were a kid. Yeah, you know, you're trying to survive, and it's kind. Of, it's kind of the opposite for me because I literally never questioned these things like until a few years ago. To me, the idea of being a sinner in need of a savior was like the driving force in my life. I got saved at the age of four from the reason of I was afraid of hell and I didn't want to go there. You know, when you make a decision like that at a really young age, that's that's a fear-based decision. Yes. That's not based on rational thought. It's not based on understanding of the core doctrines of Christianity or all that systematic theology or anything like that. You know, I just lived my life like everyone around me that was in the church was cool and everybody else was an outsider. So my whole life was like one big us versus them dichotomy. These doctrines like shaped my entire life and the idea of getting out of them and being able to look at them now is kind of surreal because I can still think like a Christian. Like I can hear people say stuff and I'm going, oh yeah, I used to think that way. And then at the same exact time on like the other side of my brain, I'm like, that is ridiculous. <laughs> so it causes a, it causes a lot of inner consternation. That's just like, you don't know what to do. It's interesting. So you can, it's like having the two people on your shoulder. Yeah. And what you said just triggered another memory is that I, I remember having thoughts when I was about a teenager, like, I don't feel like I need to be saved. I don't feel like I need to be saved from anything. I'm fine the way I am. I just want to be left alone. Like, I don't want to have to go out and spread the good news. That thought just gave me a heart attack. Like I did not want to go out and try to convince people that all this was real when I wasn't even sure if it was real. Right. Yeah. So I didn't understand the whole need for a savior thing. I didn't think that we were all that bad as humans. I mean, some of us are, some of us deserve to be in jail, et cetera. But right. Yeah. There are bad people. Yes. Obviously. Overall, I don't think that humanity as a species or a population does not, doesn't need right. a savior. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't deserve eternal damnation. No. <laughs> I can't even wrap my head about what it's like to not think about yourself as a sinner because that's just how I grew up. It was so ingrained. Anything you do that's good is because of God. Anything you do that's bad is because you're a sinner. It's just not a healthy way to grow up. Oh. So how do you view all these ideas now? 
Well, I just don't believe any of them. If I was to believe in a god, it's certainly it couldn't be this Christian god, you know. The the jury's still out, you know, on for me like if there's a god or not or if he's a personal god or whatever. And that's not even really to me an issue because god doesn't make an impact on my life if he's there or if he's not. I definitely could not believe in these core doctrines of Christianity, you know. I can't believe the idea of an omnipotent, omniscient and omnibeloved god because it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. And I also, like you said, I don't believe that man is fundamentally flawed. We might not be perfect, but we're not born in sin and destined to an eternal life and torment in hell. So I do think, yes, we are not perfect people, but that's not really a thing. That's not really, a, it's not even a topic of discussion. Of course, we're not perfect. Right. And that's exactly what you would expect from a naturalistic worldview, that we're just evolved creatures. And why would we be perfect? Right. And so if there is a God, which, okay, 100% do not believe in a Christian God, but who am I to say that there isn't some kind of deity? I don't think there is, but obviously I can't say that there is or isn't, but it's definitely not the God of the Bible. It's right. logically impossible. The basic premises just don't follow. The very fact that God is supposedly all-knowing and yet he made humans anyway, knowing they would sin means that he got exactly what he wanted all along. This is this was his plan. So none of this makes any sense. Yeah, agreed. The idea of salvation just seems so, it just seems unnecessary. It's an extra layer on top of reality that just complicates everything and requires so much mental gymnastics on behalf of apologi apologetics, uh, apologists and Christians to be able to reconcile this convoluted story and worldview with reality. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So I think we're going to wrap this up because we're um, coming up on, on time. But just in conclusion, I think we've said kind of everything <laughs> that we really need we need to say. But like in order to believe in Christianity, you have to accept these core doctrines. So you have to believe in an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent God and that he provided the only way of salvation. And you also have to believe, even if you don't rationally accept it, you have to believe that he created sin. Because he's omniscient and knew you were going to sin. The very core of Christianity is flawed. And so what we hope to kind of share and encourage people to realize is that you can live your life outside of these doctrines. And you can believe in God or you cannot believe in God. But you don't have to live your life in fear of some invisible deity that's looking to smite you for existing the way that he created you to exist. Mm -hmm. Which is... I feel like it's pretty freeing, you know. Oh, yeah. You're also not a sinner. That's just a another freeing thing to say. Like, you are not a sinner. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with you as a human being that would keep you from becoming a fulfilled, living a fulfilled life and be happy and all these kind of things. So because of these things, you don't need salvation. If you don't need God and you're not a sinner, then there is no real need for salvation. So what's what's your concluding thoughts my concluding thoughts is that you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and close this up. I mean, this has been a fun conversation. I hope that yeah. people who are listening, it, it at least gets you to the place where you're willing to question. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not willing to question, then that's okay. You can live where you live. But we hope that this will trigger you to at least do some digging, do some critical thinking, and we'll catch you next time.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. Tune in next time, where we will continue to tackle the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? Our theme music is The Beauty of Authenticity by One Man Book. You can follow us online at flawedtheology.podbean.com and on our Facebook page, which is at Flawed Theology Podcast. You can subscribe, rate us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Until next time, remember to love yourself, love others, and take time to look for the evidence. This has been the Flop Theology Podcast. All right, well, we'll be editing that out. I thought you, I thought you were going for some crazy. Maybe my brain isn't thinking. Didn't we just say that yeah, you're going first? We did. Okay. I'm, I'm a moron. It's okay. Okay.